Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attenzione d'attenzione, which is, of course, Corsican for Achtung, Achtung. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, That's, it's sort of a bit of a silly one, isn't it, really? Because it's kind of is sort it? of, it's it's kind of two words which are look sound exactly the same, but are slightly spelt differently. Hey, Luke, are you dissing Corsica? Well, no, because someone's going to attack me with a flick knife. What'll happen is a short man will come out and conquer Europe if you do that. You need to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> um... And of course, as I'm, our listeners all know, Corsica spent 10 months occupied by the Italians, more which another time. That must have been a thankless task, occupying Corsica. Yeah, it must have been tough, mustn't it? That must have been a really, really bad, bad posting, I'd have thought. I mean, bad you know, gig. What, what could it be? Yugoslavia with the Chetniks and, and, and yeah. all the rest of it, and Albania, or yeah. Corsica. Yeah. Or Western Desert, or Russia. I mean, or, well, I mean, there, there, there aren't any good gigs in any of this. Anyway, w- welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I'm fresh returned from a trip to Germany, where I'm delighted to report to James and to our listeners, overhearing a local actually use the term Achtung, with no sense of irony or arched eyebrow. Quite magnificent. I still find it funny when people say Yavol as well. <laughs> well, the, yes, and the fact that everything is verboten in German. Parking, verboten, forbidden. <laughs> not, not no parking or please don't park it. Parking, verboten. It's... Yeah. it's I mean, it's a generational thing that that kind of, um, you know, all that German language is a thing we've been doused in, unfortunately. Yes, um, anyway, true. Anyway, I, um, but, but I took my, um, my middle daughter, I took the teen with me, and we, we, did, a bit of, we did a bit of history, and um, uh, I, I sent her the, before we left, I sent her the Wikipedia article about Operation Gomorrah. Right. And I uh, said, have you read it yet? She said, no, of course not. So on the plane, I said, have you read it? And then she went pale. 40,000 people? God, blimey. She said, you know, we're always we're always taught history uh, and, they're ta- you know, they're taught not O-level, sorry, GCSE Nazis, aren't they? And it stops in 1939. She had no idea that any of that had happened. I don't, I don't, I don't understand that because, you know, I know even at primary school that you get taught about the kind of home front and being an evacuee yeah. and all the rest of it. But then yeah. just as it's all getting to the really interesting bit, they stop. Yeah, for some reason they stop at the RAF plastering a city with... <laughs> But they don't. But they don't the even get. Store. They don't even get onto Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain. No, no. Speaking of which, I'm enjoying reading your audio book. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Next year, you might have finished it. Yeah, it's quite long, James. It is quite long. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but you yeah, know, I felt well, there was no, lots to I say. Mean, well, the Battle of Britain has started. That's the main thing. <laughs> On I'm page 478. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole point, the whole point of the book, is to kind of underline that the Battle of Britain really um, starts in May with the... with I mean, that is when Britain is imperiled, is, yeah. is in May. And I think you need the context behind that. You need to understand why it was that the Germans were suddenly kind of having a romp through France and the Low Countries. Well, um, yeah. Anyway, reading, reading, reading uh, the Battle of Britain in all good bookshops uh, imminently, um, I, I was... 
I was struck by it because the other week we were talking about Sicily and you were saying a lot of the criticism about Sicily is that they kept redrawing the plan and they didn't draft the plan straight away. And they and that, and, and your, your, your argument is, well, doesn't that indicate that they're being thorough, right? Foul Gelb goes through so many drafts and is, in fact, the product of... That's a very good point. You know, there's supposedly the greatest, the greatest, I mean, you know, without a doubt, the greatest... Um, strategic gamble, successful strategic gamble of all time. I think you can, I think you can you can safely call yes the conquest of France in 1940 by the you know but uh, Man- the von Manstein plan, Guderian's execution of it, blah blah blah. But that that's that's you know all of the Halder plans, von Brauchitsch, all mm. those people thinking well we'll do it the old way. Well, yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, the plan getting busted by that plane crash. Yep. Um. The the you know, blah blah blah. The, the drafts that that plan goes through, yeah. And yet, no one goes. Yet, no one goes. Oh, they're hopeless, dithering Germans. Um, yeah, they just uh, can't make their minds up, can they? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, but it's the same point as the evacuation point. You know, yeah. everyone's giving everyone a hard time for kind of the fact that the Germans, for the most part, get away at the end of the Sicilian campaign. Um, but most evacuations in the Second World War are really, really successful, including Operation Hannibal. I think it's called, which is. Two million Germans evacuated from East Prussia and from uh, yeah. from what, what had been Poland, what becomes yep. Poland again, you know, the, in 1945, you know, with lots of ships yep. that don't work. I mean, the, the, the point well, is, quite, if, if you if you really want to evacuate people, you, generally speaking, you can. Well, it also, and it kind of it kind of undermines the idea that the, what you don't do is withdraw when engaged with the enemy either, because it happens over and over again and, they, and it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. It's just, you yeah. know, when we study the Second World War, there are, hundreds of double standards where when the brits do it it's them hanging off the shirt tails of the americans or being rubbish yeah and, and when the germans do it it's tactical genius you know i, mean, I can't think yeah, of snazzy, yeah yeah you know it's, it's, that, it's, yeah. it just depends on which way you're looking at it doesn't it yeah but it yeah. doesn't cut it cuts both ways um anyway one of our producers was in malta this week um and kept sending photos and things and and sent back this remarkable story from the air museum at uh, Tarkali the old airdrome near to um Emdina and uh an exhibition is it, it, this is what he said an exhibition on second world war airmen included the uniform of an american called herb or was he called herb you know if he's an american <laughs> who was one of 50 air mechanics sent to malta to patch up damaged b24 liberators which made emergency landings on malta when they were damaged by enemy action during operations over sicily on one occasion herb and some of his fellow mechanics were sent to sicily to patch up a b24 that had made an emergency landing in a melon field following the change of a couple of engines the b24 was successfully flown off an 880 yard runway carved out by the men in the melon field wow i mean yeah. you, you know a lot about malta don't you, James? Yeah, it's a great place. It's so much fun to go. I mean, obviously, you know, don't don't be try try not to be rude to the government because that yeah. tends not to end well. But um, yeah, but but it's a lovely place to visit. It really, really is. It's been transformed in the last sort of twenty years, fifteen, twenty years. Yeah. With all that EU dosh they've been they've been given. Um, but it is amazing, and, and there are still kind of relics of the um, of the of the battle and stuff. And there's lots to see and do, and it's it's great. I mean, I I do remember my kind of first ever visit there was to to Carly. I got there in um, I got there in the morning and um, turned up, and there was Ray and 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 Frederick Galea and the people that run it, and Mary Rose. They're brilliant people. They're kind of super dedicated to running this Malta Aviation Museum, and yeah. and I had read this. I'd just done my first bit of research on the Siege of Malta at the Imperial War Museum, and I found this letter, and it was in this this 
series of papers belonging to a former matron of Imtafa Hospital, which is so from Takali you look up and there's the the, the the silent city of Medina, and then there's a sort of a gap, and then there's another hill, and on the other hill there's this clock tower, which is the old kind of British military his hospital of Imtafa. And yep. and this 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 lady had been the, the the sister you know the senior matron there, and obviously what happened is some pilot had been killed and she'd written to the mother and the mother had then written back, and the the letter that the mother had written back, I can remember absolutely verbatim. She said, the last bit was, one day when this cruel war is over, I'm going to visit Malta and see where my boy is buried, and it was just completely oh God. heartbreaking, because for all the reasons you know and i yeah. remember the hairs on the back of my neck just sort of standing up and anyway literally the following week i was i did my first visit to malta and, and i got there in the evening and i looked out over i went into valletta and i looked out from the upper baracas and i looked over grand harbour and it was amazing because it, it looked just like it did in the black and white photographs of the second world war i could yeah. identify absolutely everything and the following day i took myself off to the carly aviation museum malta aviation museum went to see and I saw Ray Polidano and I was telling him this story and he said oh come with me come with me um and um he showed me this bits of old hurricane and and bits of old fuselage and, and canvas that had been around the fuselage yeah. and she he said that is Alex Mackey's hurricane and that was the boy wow. that was the boy who killed out of you know 750 people that came down on Malta in the war that was one that they just happened to have and I oh said, you God. are kidding me. And he said, no, it gets better because he said uh, Alex Mackey crash site is actually one of the few crash sites where you can still see. So we piled into a car, went, disappeared off, went down into this beautiful, beautiful sort of market garden valley of vegetables and tomatoes and, and probably melons. Mm. And, um, and there on the far <laughs> side of the valley was this wall, this really high wall. It must have been kind of, sort of 12, 14 foot high wall. But the top left-hand chunk of it was missing and they said that is where Alex Mackey's hurricane crashed and what had happened is that he was on the night flight he was on the 1435 um, night flight and um, it was late January 1942 and he was taking off in the afternoon for an air test and suddenly three 109s came in under the radar and just mm. as he was taking off hammered him so he took off and then curled back into this valley and was trying to clear the end of the valley and get over the dingly cliffs and bail out and just couldn't quite make it. And he was yeah. flung out of the cockpit about 25 yards, 25 metres, and was obviously in a pretty bad shape. And across the other side of the valley was this tiny little church. And some people watched it, saw it happen, and came over with a ladder and picked him up and put him on the ladder. So his Sutton harness and everything had just yeah. been completely broken. And he was still alive. And they managed to get an ambulance down and took him to Imtafa Hospital, where he died four days later. And then prompted the, the, the letter and all the rest of it. Yeah. But it was this amazing moment because I kind of just, I don't know, I just, I just felt in a sort of, um, sort of quasi-spiritual way that, that it was kind of somehow meant to be, that I was supposed yeah. to be writing this book and researching it and all the rest of it. It yeah. was my first bit of history. And it was this incredibly... Um, touching uh, and profoundly upsetting story about one person yeah. uh, and and i think the thing about the second world war is that you're always being 
you know, you can talk about the macro, can't you? And you can talk about the whys and wherefores and the you know value of evacuations or not or yeah. multiple plans or whatever. But it is still being fought by millions of people who are all individuals who have mummies who love them and all the rest of it and, and yeah. are yeah. putting their neck on the line. And, and that really just kind of sort of brought it home to me. It's amazing. And I, I went to, then went to visit his grave, actually. You can see his grave and everything. And do we know if his mother made it to Malta? I don't, but but out of the blue at the history at the Chalk Valley History Festival a couple of years ago, um, this girl came up to me and said, "Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm Alex Mackey's great niece." I went, <laughs> "No, I can't believe it." You know, it's absolutely amazing. That is incredible. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And there's also and it, there's, and there's, there's there's another really cool thing in 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 Malta that you can go and find, which again, which Ray showed me. So there's this field, uh, and there's just this completely bare field, and it's really un you know it's not particularly notable in any way whatsoever tiny mm. little field you go down this little track and suddenly you can see two bits of iron sticking up out of the ground and they're exactly eight feet apart and they just look like metal rods sticking out of the ground what they actually are is the remains of two 20 millimeter cannons from a spitfire the spitfire just went straight in and the only bit that was left of these two cannons that just went plunge straight into the ground wow and the cannons on a on a spitfire mark 5 are spaced exactly yeah. eight feet apart and there they still are it's absolutely amazing incredible yeah the guy bailed out i'm glad to say um oh, and, it, and, it, and it just literally just nosed straight into the ground and there they still are and he at least had a spitfire because i mean that, that i, I <laughs> yes. mean we, we, we were talking about you were saying in it you know all these macro decisions and everything and then the the, the individual's they're, they're, you know, Alex Mackey, he's he's on the receiving end of a decision to use basically obsolete fighter planes in Malta because Malta's not prioritised the way fighter sweeps in 1942 are in the channel, for instance, those yeah. rhubarbs and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and and all, But also, it, interestingly, the Germans are still building one, 109s, even though by nine... I mean, it's a, it's a moment where basically it's the hurricane's obsolete the the me 109 is about to become obsolete yep and the poor sod is caught in the in the you know the 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 that yeah. those big decisions yeah. are affecting him personally so you're absolutely right you can talk about the macro and and go uh, and the individual but there is a, there is a there is a his single fate, his yeah. fate's decided somewhere else by someone else you know probably yeah there is a there is a single um uh um group of um fighter group 77 jg 77 that yeah. that is put on malta between i think sort of march and april or april 1941 something like that and yeah. it is um it's commanded by uh Joachim munchenberg who's one of the kind of great fighter races yeah. and in their three-week stint there they shoot down they destroy 42 hurricanes for no loss to themselves dear god yeah, and the really and you know, and as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the British war effort, and I think we by, by and large did it pretty well. But the but the lack of Spitfires being sent to Malta is an absolute disgrace. It is it yeah. is just terrible, and and they should have been sent there absolutely from the beginning part of 1941. And, yeah. and what is really interesting is that Air Vice Marshal um, Hugh Pugh Lloyd, who is the Air Officer Commanding on Malta at that period, never once says, "Can you send me Spitfires?" He just says, send me more fighters. He never, ever specifies it. And Tom Neal and co, who were kind of over there fighting and battling in these kind of clapped out old hurricanes. Which And the big problem about the hurricane is the one thing you absolutely need on Malta is speed of climb. 
because yeah. it's 60 miles to the southern coast of Sicily. So it is kind of 15, 20 minutes flying time for a, uh, for a 109 to come from Sicily to Malta. Yeah. So what you obviously want to do is have height and, and the sun behind you and all the rest of it. So you need a plane that can get higher than a 109 is going to be by the time it gets to Malta. And yep. the hurricane ain't it. Is not that aircraft. <laughs> that is not that That is not what it can do. The one plane that can do that is the Spitfire. A Spitfire Mark II can do it better than, you know. I mean, you should have been yeah. sending Mark IIs. They absolutely should have been spent sending over Mark Vs absolutely the moment they come. And what's really interesting is between November 1940 and December 1941, there are something like 11,800 Spitfires built and 9,600 Hurricanes. So in other words, there's more, you know. And if yeah. they'd just got rid of a couple of thousand, you know, 500 Spitfires, which they could yep. easily have spared and sent them to Malta, that would have just transformed the whole thing. But and they, they just don't but, do it. They but, don't but, do it. But, they do not do it. Well, but they're, but they're also regarded as, they're regarded as essential to um, uh, you, you, Great Britain's air defence, aren't they? But, but there's no they're threat the, at that point. Yeah, but, but, but I think, I, I know, I know, but you could, uh, trying to think about their thinking, is their thinking... Well, you know, if the Germans if the Germans do another concerted effort like the Battle of Britain again, we we you know we we need to be. Yeah, but the, but they know they know they know enough about. Uh, they've got a big enough intelligence picture to know that's not going to happen. And yeah. certainly after May nineteen middle of May nineteen forty one, where they're you know all, okay, after Operation Barbarossa, where clearly yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah, so yeah. second half yeah. of by the second half of nineteen forty one, it's, it's, it's yeah. just there's no excuse for it whatsoever. And what's really interesting is that Hugh Pugh Lloyd just doesn't get it. He just he, you know he's a bomber man by background. He yeah. doesn't understand the need to urgently require spitfires. He just says fighters. It takes yeah. Basil Embry, who is a special envoy of TEDA, who's working at, who has become um, AOC uh, um, Middle East, RAF Middle East. And TEDA yeah. goes, what the hell is going on in Malta? Right, you, mate, you're going to go over to Malta and you're going to do a thorough chat, a thorough report, um, check everything out and come back to me with your recommendations. Embry comes back 10 days later and goes, okay, this is what they need. They need spitfires over there really super quickly and they need an absolute first class ground controller and they just need to sort out you need more radar more ground control yeah. and you need more spitfires and you need them absolutely as quickly as you possibly can get them uh, and within a matter of two weeks the first spitfires arrive so they when they needed to they could do it well tedder tedder's only comparatively new to coming to the middle east and yeah. he's, uh, you know but but it's it should have been Hugh Pugh lloyd yeah, yeah. flagging it up much earlier and going this is what we need and, and I remember Tom Neal said, said, you know, so this is absolutely disgraceful. You know, these hurricanes are completely clapped out. The engines don't work. I've crashed three times in an island full of stone walls. You know, I'm lucky to be alive. You know, please, can we get some Spitfires? And he, P. Lloyd, just turned to him and said, a bad workman blames his tools. And he said, that is the closest I ever got to punching a senior officer in the face. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, time for a short break. Um, uh, when we return, we're going to try to answer this fascinating question from um, Dave at home, which re- recently arrived by, um, on the Twitter hashtag We Have Ways. Uh, love the podcast, winking emoji. I've always wondered what happened when thousands of Italian troops were catching North Africa. How do you feed, guard, question them all? And how uh-huh. do they end up in England when shipping was at a premium? Yep. Uh, James, you have a ponder while I put the kettle on.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways. Uh, Hugh Pugh Lloyd, your name shall live forever in infamy. Who's <laughs> a bomber guy? You don't give a bomber guy a fighter guy job. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. Well, I simple think the, one of the things that I think is that I think to start <laughs> off with in Malta, because Malta wasn't top priority, um, I, I think the kind of command there was sort of a bit B-list. Yeah. And, you know, it took them a while to realise that actually this is a place of enormous strategic importance. The entire Mediterranean campaign in North Africa and all the rest of it has a massive part to play. And actually, we need to kind of up our game. So by the summer of 1942, you've got Keith Park there. And, you, you know, you don't really get any better than him. No. Um, you, you've got Gort, who is, you know, former CIGS and head of the BEF, VC and all the rest of it. Um, you know, it's just they've they've cranked it up, but but Hugh Pugh Lloyd is just he's just a bit beeless at that point. But isn't that but isn't that partly because the the Mediterranean is the Navy's concern? Thank you very much, James. And we'll yes, take I've, care I've, of this. Yeah, the, I think there's a lot. We've, of that. we've knocked out the Italian Navy at Taranto. Thank you, and uh, you know, no and need no need for us to bother, chaps. You know, I think there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, fiefdoms and inter-service rivalry and. And and necessarily at the start of the war, things aren't joined up properly, and the the, the yeah. different bit, the I think different that's bits more of the, that they aren't talking to each other, and because I mean, France, the RAF, and the army basically don't speak to each other at all, yeah, and uh, uh, and and so on, and that even in that the, the, the those pennies are still yet to drop. In 1941, absolutely. Because I literally this morning I was just reading a, a quote from General Alexander in in early July 1943, and he's saying, you know, modern warfare is a correlation between air, land, and sea. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, the navy, the air force, and the army have to be a brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. it's just you know that's just not <laughs> you what? <laughs> yeah, that's just not 
that's not part of the lingo in, in 1939. No, no, no. Right, OK, so those those captured Italian troops, what happened to them, James? Because after all, at the end of the war, there's hundreds of thousands of Italian men working on, on farms here in the UK. And the, a big part of the British agricultural effort at the end of the war is, is prisoners of war. No, no yeah. worries about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, when you've got Operation Compass, which is when the Western Desert Fort launches this attack across the Western Desert in December 1940, and they manage to capture yeah. basically two Italian armies, and they have something like 133,000 Italians they've suddenly got to deal with. Yeah. To start off with, they're just corralled in the, in the kind of open desert, uh, and then they build these cages, and then, then send them back um, to the canal zone where they're putting these huge POW camps, and they're basically just mm. shipped out. You know, they're put on ships in the canal, um, at, at Geneva or wherever it may be, or, or yeah. uh, you know, and they're sent round to Britain and to Canada, and that's where they and that's where they go. I mean, it's interesting, you know, because a lot of people when they first arrive, a lot of troops first arrive in the Middle East. You know, the first job they're given is kind of guard duty on, on prisoners. And I remember talking to this amazing guy in the 28th Maori Battalion of the New Zealanders, and um, he was called Mikey Parkinson. And these, I've interviewed a few Maori, and they were all just absolutely brilliant because they all just swore like troopers. And, and instead of the kind of sort of, you know, that kind of sort of British reserve, they just tell you exactly as it is. Right. And, and anyway, this guy Mikey turns up, he's 18, he's still got a real baby face. And all the Italian prisoners take the piss out of him. And he goes, oh, you know, fuck you. I'm going to fucking have you, mate. And and, uh, <laughs> and eventually this guy just still sort of goes, oh, well, you know, little baby getting a bit cross, bambino and all this kind of stuff. So he, he actually he stabbed this Italian up the arse with a bayonet. <laughs> You're kidding. He said, yeah, I can tell you after that, I didn't fucking take the piss. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah wow. you're absolutely right and and actually here where i am in broad chalk in the chalk valley yeah. i was talking to um the uh, amazing guy alan chalk who who first joined the farm in um where i'm sitting right now yeah. um in 1944 and only retired a couple of years ago he's now you know whatever he is 89 or something um uh, and he used to really, really like all the Italian POWs. Mm. But there was also a former S- Waffen SS guy um, who was here who, who um, made his life a misery and used to chase him and kind of make monster faces at him and all the rest of it. And, you know, he really didn't like him at all. But he said all the Italians were absolutely lovely and they were brilliant workers. Yeah. And, yeah. Know, we, we, well, yes, because you... Them and- cause you- because that that's that's one of the interesting things, isn't it? It's the Italian the Italians sort of became part of the part of the furniture, didn't they? And people the didn't trust them and accept them. And uh, uh, my, my, where my parents live in Buckinghamshire, the next village along, there, there's an old there's a like what was a camp for Italian workers right. outside the village who worked on the farm there. I mean, at the, at the very end of the war, when the German when the German uh, or after the war, when it looked like the German harvest was going to fail. German prisoners of war were sent back to work on farms in Germany mm. by the British government as part of the sort of stopgap to try and stop the, the German population from from starving. Because after all, German agriculture had been had been uh, uh, peopled with with slave labourers from all over Europe, mainly Poles from all over Europe. And yeah. then, of course, those people all become DPs and want to go home. And the German the German agricultural uh, sector looks like it's going to collapse, so they end yeah. up sending people back from here as a stopgap to, to, to try and stop that from happening. I mean, the, I mean, you know, the contrast, of course, is with Germany, where basically Germany 
uh, what, it's a third of the armaments industry is foreign and slave labour. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing, the sheer scale of it. Yeah. And concentration camps used as sort of um, reservoirs of labour to top up factories when they run out of people or when they're overstretched. And, 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 and you know, the, the, the irony, of course, is that Nazi Germany is more multicultural... <laughs> yes, than, than probably than yeah, yeah. probably modern Germany, yeah. and and yet it's this racist racist multiculturalism. It's the str- I mean, it's the it's the strangest sort of. It's also um, completely uh, self defeating, of course, because yeah, 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 you know course, because yeah. Germany's already really really short of food, um, but obviously you know uh, and and rationing is incredibly stringent in Germany. But of course, you can't give a slave labourer more food than a German citizen. That would just no. be wrong. So no. German citizens are already struggling and are really short of food and really hungry. But your slave labour is even worse. So, yep. of course, as a result of that, your productivity goes down and down and but down then you and get, down and down. But then you get those schemes like uh, where if you work well, you get more food. And then that food is taken from the guy who's working badly. So your workforce gets locked <laughs> in this not spiral of starvation. and yeah, uh, yeah. It's yeah. The wrong way round. <laughs> yeah. It's not very clever. Uh, and, it's, uh, and again, it's kind of, a, you know, you just want to bang your head against the wall and just go, just give up. You're going to lose. It's not going yeah. to work. Yeah, you know. which is clear by 1943. I mean, that's the interesting thing. Being in, I was in Hamburg, you know, we talked about this earlier, in Hamburg, and I was reading Adam Tooze's book, Wages of Destruction. Yeah, and and he basically makes the point that the Hamburg raid, July, late July, July twenty third, twenty fifth, when it was in 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 nineteen forty three, basically marks the point at which Germany has been defeated comprehensively. It's Stalingrad's gone. The Kursk offensive has failed, and after all, the Kursk offensive is as an attempt to nip off a salient. It's not an attempt to encircle an army or. Or, or, or drive to Moscow, or take the oil in the Caucasus. Yep. Its its ambition is incredibly limited. Sicily, that these things all yeah, Mussolini's that, just been deposed two days. M- Mussolini's yes, yeah, so, so things are really unraveling. You know, uh, Tunisia has happened. Two hundred ninety thousand uh, uh, German so, German Italian soldiers fall into the hands of the Allies. You know more even than at Stalingrad. The Luftwaffe has taken this massive kicking that we talked about. Uh, quite recently and and he basically uh, and then you and then you get the Speer armaments drive at the same time which is like which is basically a public relations exercise yes, because yes, there is no war there is no war to win there's no way you can win the war you can make as many Messerschmitt you can make as many ME 109 G's as you like they're obsolete and and they're you're doing they're it for, you're doing it for yeah, headlines, and they've no longer got any ball bearings, so they've, they're using yep. so they're inefficient, and the and the synthetic oils that they're putting in are not good enough. So engines are catching fire, which is why you know Hans Joachim Marseille comes a cropper because his engine catches fire yep. and he has to bail out, hits the tail, kills yep. himself. And by and you know, by, f- and by so February on. of forty four, the rate of attrition of Luftwaffe fighter pilots is basically fifty percent. I mean mm. it. it, it yeah. And and but the point but the but the but the point you know in Hamburg shows if they get the area bombing right and then of course the RAF makes the terrible error of distracting itself and trying to bomb Berlin out in the yeah same and way. actually while we're on this I mean it was just interesting because I was just telling you that I've I've just read um, Max Hastings books on chastise yeah. and it's kind of quite odd kind of reading a book on a subject a narrative history about. that I've already written about but but also I mean there was but he had lots of stuff in there that I didn't know and I hadn't put in my book which was really really interesting I've got to say. But one of the points, one of the points, one of the points which I did think was interesting was you saying, why? Did, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Why was it that Harris then moved to Berlin? Why didn't he just keep hammering the Ruhr? 
Well, that's the that's the same question Tuz asks because he says you look at you look at Hamburg and what's happened in the Ruhr and the disruption in the Ruhr. You know, Speer keeps having to go there and sort of do these sort of personal bravery things for PR purposes, like searching through rubble and 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 all that sort of stuff because they know that they know that the Ruhr is really in trouble and. And then they, and then they, you know, the Hamburg firestorm and chastise. You've, you've, it's basically the RAF, a bomber command in '43. They've got that they can do these massive efforts. They're coordinating with the with the Eighth Air Force. It's sort of all there. And then, but, 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 but if the Berlin's just... Berlin's about politics, though, isn't it? That's about that's about some sort of decapitation effort, isn't it? Is that, that I, I you... think so. But I mean, let, let's just let's just say you're you're in Harris's shoes. And you, you've basically destroyed Hamburg, which is Germany's second city and its kind of biggest yeah. port. So that's, that's a, you know, from your point of view, that's a big tick. You, you have hammered, okay, so, you know, photographs afterwards of, of Dortmund and Essen um, yeah. are, suggest that the damage is greater than perhaps is the reality. But let's not get away from the fact, these places are still absolutely hammered. Yeah, in the, in the spring and early summer of 1943. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Ruhr looks wrecked, and it's not like he's not continuing to hammer them. I mean, yeah, you know, the bomber command is still being sent over to the Ruhr. It's just not. Yeah, yeah. It's but just the, the main the effort. Is, uh, is so, Berlin. if you're Harris and you think you've just secured, you know, you've hammered the Ruhr, you've already got Hamburg, isn't the kind of obvious thing to do to then go to Berlin, which is the centre of government and the centre of the whole thing, and an effort yes, to try and but, do? I mean, it's easy suppose, to be kind of wise but, after the event, isn't it? I don't know because because the Americans the Americans are still interested in you know synthetic oil ball, ball bearings um, you know yeah. and it actually uh, it's the point Adam Tooze makes is if you disrupt steel production yes. you disrupt everything yes uh, and that that everything is about steel because after all that all the internal arguments in Germany about who gets how much steel and 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 of course everyone talks about tanks and planes and u-boats but ammunition is of course the thing in the the, the, the actually the important thing the four things you can build as many tanks planes and u-boats but they haven't got anything to fire they're, they're, they're yeah. essentially well they're, I, yeah they're, i mean i do i do i mean i would i would agree that that the all our effort on Berlin is is a mistake because it doesn't achieve what they wanted to but achieve. you can see why they made it yeah but but i think you can see why you make the decision in the first place certainly yeah and you know yeah, you have to also. I, mean, I think we made, we said this the other day. I mean, there was such a big difference between bombing actually in 1943, and there is a, a yeah. bombing actually in kind of you know by the spring of 1944. That that 12 month period between the launch of the all out strategic air offensive against Germany, yeah. which starts on I think the 6th of March against Essen actually, um, um, yeah. 1943 to the 6th of March 1944. The difference is absolutely enormous because by you know yeah. by by the spring of 1944 you really have got um, H2S in place. And in the case of the Americans yeah. H2X, you really have got oboe working. You've been perfecting your Pathfinder force. You've just you've just taken it on a whole notch. Yes, and the and the Eighth Air Force is enormous, by, but it, it's it, yes, it's suddenly the overtaken. thousand bomber raids. Because in overtaken bomber do, command, yeah. Well, exactly to do, but to do a thousand bomber raid in bomber command in forty three, they're pulling in coastal command planes, they're pulling in Wellingtons from yes. training units and everything, to, just to make up the numbers for for, for political, basically for political propaganda reasons. Yeah. By nineteen forty, the, the autumn of nineteen forty four, they can just do that. They could just chuck yeah. these things up. And yeah, they're flying well, well, daylight. The, the thousand well bomber raids are in there. I mean, the first one is at the end of nineteen May, end of May nineteen forty two, and then they're kind of you know one of the big problems that Harris faces is that because of the arrival of the Americans, they they've got heavy bombers. Yeah, they need all weather 
airfields with concrete runways. Yeah. So a lot of the run- concrete runways that were being built for Bomber Command because of their increased emphasis on four-engine heavies, they're having to then hand over to the Americans, and yep. they're having to build some more. I mean, they built something like 190 all-weather airfields in you know two years or something. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just absolutely astonishing the level of of kind of sort of of, of construction work to, yep. f- to fuel this 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 air effort and you know well, we've talked about it before haven't you but i mean you you you, you cannot deny that the strategic air campaign massively cripples germany it really does well but could and, it have and, done more that's the thing and well could it have done more um but without it you, you you look at you know if you're not interfering with steel and synthetic oil the germans have got well, they've got a chance of prolonging the war for another year. I mean, this is the thing: is 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 that we're, 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 you're still talking about a situation where they where they lose. It's just a question of when, isn't it? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I guess it is. Anyway, anyway. well, we were gonna we were gonna read some questions out, but we're actually we're out of time. We've, We've done our usual thing, one. haven't we? <laughs> I've just got to do I've just got to do a little puff actually because I'm oh I'm, right okay I, I'm up for some award. Um, the the military history matters award. Yep. And you, you can go online to Military History Matters and you go Awards 2020 and there's a list of about 12 different books and you've got to vote for them. Um, and, and if anyone feels like they want to be nice to me um, and helpful, then um, it would be wonderful if they could vote for Normandy 44. Military History Matters. Military History Matters. Book Is Awards that, 2020. Do they, mean that, do they mean that it matters or that, it's, that it matters of military history? I don't know. I don't They're having know. it both ways there, I think. Yeah, I know, I know. I don't want for anyone to feel under any obligation whatsoever. I mean, you know, you may feel that Normandy 44 was rubbish and you don't feel it worthy of a vote. But if you do, I would be very, very chuffed. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Got a treat for you in store on Thursday. Daniel Todman is joining us and he'll be discussing his brilliant new book, Britain's War, Volume 2. Yeah, we're big um, fans. We're big fans. Don't miss that. Send your questions and comments and corrections by Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays. And do follow us on Twitter at WeHaveWaysPod. That's right. We finally gave the podcast its own Twitter account. Yeah, that's Rather than, I mean, it's made the whole business of cutting, pasting the link that little bit smoother for me. Um, Our email address, um, if you're old, our email address is wehavewastepodcast at gmail.com. It's not reserved solely for the old, despite my previous comments. It says here on this script... (laughs) <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. Tschüssi, tschüss. Yeah, cheerio.